0: A lot of the information in this podcast is covered in greater depth in my book, Compact of the Republic, The League of States, and the Constitution. You can pick that up at www.compactoftherepublic.com. In that work, I argued that the American struggle with Britain was a constitutional crisis and a war for independence rather than a traditional revolution. Much of the content from this series is expounded upon in greater detail in Chapter 2. Again, you can pick that book up at www.compactoftherepublic.com. Are you ready to master historical topics without ingesting hours of readings or boring professors? Dave Benner, author of Compact of the Republic and contributor to the 10th Amendment Center and Mises Institute, is your host. Sit back and behold the obliteration of conventional historical narratives, preferring dangerous freedom to peaceful slavery since 1776, it's Brush Fires of the Mind. The struggle for American independence Episode 20, Disaster in New York. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. In the last episode, we covered the Declaration of Independence and specifically the severance of the American colonies from the British. Now, ever since that occurred, the British had been determined to wipe out this rebellion. George III had said, enough is enough, considering this an open and avowed rebellion against the Crown. This happened after the American states had... Decided to adopt the Richard Henry Lee Resolution in the Second Continental Congress on July 2nd. The British Navy at that time started to amass ships off the coast of New York Harbor. And these ships were commanded by Richard Howe, who was the brother of William Howe. So Richard Howe served as the top naval officer in the British War Ministry at that time, and William Howe had command of the British Army at that point. Richard Howe was ordered to impose a naval blockade off the American Eastern seaboard to stop all trade with other parts of the world so that the Americans could not benefit from the goods from other countries, and they could not export their own products to other countries. And Richard Howe was not really able to hold an embargo for very much, at least a full embargo, although partial embargoes would be maintained throughout the course of the war. Um, He claimed to have too few ships to accomplish the task, and the ships were also needed to support other military objectives, such as we will talk about shortly. Many French goods were actually smuggled into America throughout the duration of the war um, from this point forward, and while the French had not yet joined the American forces militarily or created an alliance yet with the American patriots, they would eventually. However, this time, some of their support was kind of underhanded and just kind of been underneath the table. But smuggling did occur even throughout this war. The British attempted to seize Charleston in um, around the same time that the Declaration of Independence was being mauled over. And this was really supposed to be the first military excursion of the British. Um, in the south. And it's sometimes referred to by historians as the first siege of Charleston to differentiate it from the later and successful British siege of Charleston in 1780. At that point, the British did capture Charleston, but at this point, they would have no such luck. That's because in June of 1776, Colonel William Moultrie defended a partially constructed fort in Charleston. And Charles Lee, the famous general in the Continental Army, successfully repulsed attempts to capture the fort and make an excursion into the South Carolina mainland by the British military. Uh, Lee had organized brilliant defensive positions to avoid bombardments and he was also assisted by some good weather that had really delayed some of the British strike force Um, and really postponed the attempt to take Charleston without much resistance. This was really the only time in the entire war where American naval forces had successfully defeated the British Royal Navy. And it's not really because that the naval forces of the Americans were superior, but again, the uh, weather conditions were such that it allowed Lee and Moultrie to organize defenses in time, evade, You know the biggest brunt of the force that the british could offer and the british had to withdraw their forces from charleston they had to sail northward and eventually uh, william howe and richard howe would use them in the new york campaign now it's important to note at this point that the american naval forces were not very centralized whatsoever Some of the individual states had their own naval forces, ships, and officers, but these resources were supplemented by what are called privateers. And those were privately owned ships, often with cannons attached to the sides that had been utilized throughout the war to the benefit of the newly formed United States. So a lot of the naval warfare, at least on the American side, was actually privatized during this war And that occurred in the American Republic all the way up until after the War of 1812. So this was a unique kind of facet of the American military that a lot of people aren't very aware of. But privateers were used throughout the duration of the war alongside the uh, government-directed military forces of the Navy. Charles Lee, after kind of winning the day by saving Charleston, obtained some prestige in the army at this point, and soon travels to rejoin Washington in New York to link up with the main force of the Continental Army. Now, Charles Lee, we haven't gotten to talk too much about him yet, but he was certainly infamous, and strategically, he couldn't have disagreed with Washington more about how to fight this war. Whereas Washington had kind of cast doubt upon forces that weren't professional military forces because he thought they were too undisciplined, too unruly, and would not be able to be as successful, Lee thought that militia forces should be the backbone of this entire endeavor. And Lee was a huge proponent of what we would now call guerrilla warfare. Using local forces that were familiar with territory to fire upon troops, hide behind trees, kind of utilize a disorganized type of resistance toward conventional military forces that were used at the time. And that wasn't in all the cases. I mean, Lee was a professional soldier, but he certainly saw the value in this. Also, Lee was something of a classical liberal radical, whereas Washington, although he favored independence, was more of a conservative-leaning person, at least in terms of the military Uh, paradigm of the day. Uh, The first siege of Charleston is really important in the conflict. However, it really is kind of overshadowed. Most histories don't really mention it, but it really was an important stand that convinced some people that, you know, this was a serious cause that, you know, may be successful. The American patriots on paper certainly have a lot of disadvantages compared to the British rivals, but... It certainly was an important stand, and it certainly raised the morale of many of the voices that had called for independence and resistance against the British. Now, after Lee links up with Washington's army in New York, it is determined that some stand will happen. Washington will make some defense of New York there, and it was just imperative to hold off Howe's invading forces, which everyone knew were coming, because Howe had been determined to end this thing as soon as possible. Most people that had looked at this war objectively had said, well, the Americans should probably on paper be squashed pretty quickly. So William Howe's forces landed across the harbor eventually on Stanton Island and grew to about 32,000 troops. Now, not all those troops would actually be used in the Manhattan invasion, but he had a considerable army. Keep in mind, this is at a time where Washington's force, I think, was about 12,000 in the Continental Army. So William Howe's army dwarfs that of Washington's and the Continental Forces. However, there were many forces at that time that were uh, militia forces that were up there and not considered generally part of the Continental Army as well. So at the main part of the battle on August 27th, Cornwallis and Howe attack and surprised the Continental Army, which at that point had been kind of in the northwestern part of Manhattan. Uh, The Patriots were forced to retreat en masse and completely driven out of New York proper um, in a matter of weeks. This was a huge disaster for the Continental Army. There was a 20% casualty rate for the Patriots, and at one point, Howell's army swings around the flank of Washington and is almost able to capture the entire Continental Army. This was a huge blunder, and Washington certainly got a lot of criticism for this. For quite a long time, actually, Washington had remained stubbornly opposed to abandoning New York and really decided to fight on what's called Harlem Heights for a long time. Um, Sometimes this battle is also called the Battle of Brooklyn Heights. But really, he got a lot of criticism for not really mobilizing the army quick enough to kind of abandon this, knowing that the situation was way too risky to continue a stand on Manhattan. One of the people that actually criticized Washington, as we'll see, was Charles Lee. The casualties were such that the Americans lost the most in the Battle of Long Island, or as it's sometimes called the Battle of Brooklyn Heights. The Americans had 300 killed and about 1,000 captured, which is a considerable amount of forces. Remember, Washington's force was about 12,000, so about somewhere about 8% got captured. And remember, Washington's behavior was such that he risked having the entire army be captured by Howe at this point. The British had only 59 killed and about 300 wounded or missing. Now, even though many in England were shocked that Washington was eventually able to evacuate his army and escape into New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Celebrations broke out in England. This was considered a serious victory for the British, and many had thought that, you know, this war was almost over already. Also, though, some within continental ranks begin to question Washington's, uh, Propensity to face this foe and wage this war, and many thought his deficiencies were exposed, namely Charles Lee, who we talked about earlier. Remember, Charles Lee couldn't have disagreed with Washington more on most things, and he seriously criticized Washington for spending too much time fighting on Harlem Heights rather than evacuating his force. Washington had also, at one point, split his forces in the face of a larger army, which was considered a total military blunder and kind of one of the quintessential rules that you should never do on a battlefield. And as I said, he fought on Harlem Heights too long, according to some. Also, the subpar behavior of Washington's forces was also criticized, and some had said that they were too inexperienced, they needed to be drilled better, and Washington was not maintaining and managing his army efficiently enough. However, it is worth noting that some historians consider Washington's Long Island evacuation one of his most impressive feats in the war, because even though Washington's decisions had arguably almost led to the entire capture of the army, he did effectively utilize mobilization techniques to get armies out of precarious situations, and this happened multiple times in the war. Now, while Washington gets a lot of criticism by some historians, not all, but some, William Howe also gets his fair share of criticism on the British side because some historians, including Murray Rothbard, have basically argued that Howe's behavior after the Battle of Brooklyn Heights was tantamount to treason because he had acted in ways that had allowed Washington to get away. Here's what Murray Rothbard said about this situation. quote: "They failed notably to take up this opportunity to crush the American forces." Both ardent Whigs, and both strongly opposed to the war with America, the Howes took it upon themselves, in a move tantamount to treason, to avoid crushing the Americans, and to hold out the olive branch of peace. Admiral Howe apparently convinced his brother of this policy upon arrival of New York in mid-July, and from then on General Howe pursued continuous acquisition and possession of enemy territory rather than decisive blows against the Continental Army. That's what Rothbard said and conceived in Liberty. So Rothbard takes a position that the Howe brothers had essentially allowed Washington to escape. And indeed, Howe decided to get into a tactic of having a siege rather than trying to pursue and push the offensive and try to capture the army before it could get across the harbor and into New Jersey. However, other historians have argued that there's other reasons that the Howes allowed this to occur. For instance, some had thought that the British military would triumph in this war very quickly and crush the Americans. But William Howe had decided to ease tensions by not acting in such a fierce and ferocious manner to allow for a more peaceable reconciliation after the inevitable British victory. So there's various dispositions when it comes to this issue but some had thought that the Howells had failed to end the war right there in August of 1776. After Howe had established a victory in the Battle of Long Island, word got to the Americans that he wanted to talk peace, actually. And what happened there was the British had captured Major General John Sullivan of the Continental Army and sent him back freely to the Continental Congress with an offering to set up a peace conference. This became known as the Staten Island Peace Conference, and it was attended by delegates from the Continental Congress. It was composed of Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Edward Rutledge. The delegation was instructed to, quote, ask a few questions and take Hal's answers, but had no other authority to make any decisions there. Many had thought that this was just going to be a facade, that the British didn't have any intention of allowing the peace to remain as long as the states would be independent. And really, the delegates had no authority. They were also worried that, well, Howe and his brother don't really have any real political authority either because the British war ministry or the British government would ultimately have to make these decisions, not the top commanders of the British military. Howell, at that conference, demanded that the Continental Congress rescind the Declaration of Independence. And at that time, that was just an impossible prospect for the delegates, and they had no authority to go back on that. And ultimately, no headway was made by this conference, even though it seemed to be a candid attempt um, to end the conflict. But the terms were such that the Americans just could not allow this to transpire. Remember, both Howes were Whigs and really had sympathized with the American cause, but they were not able to persuade the Americans to abandon the Declaration of Independence and the idea that these independent states would be recognized polities. That was just unacceptable from the British standpoint. And ultimately, no headway was made by the conference, and it is usually rarely mentioned because it made no headway. Now, after a series of skirmishes that happened around New York Harbor in the summer to fall of 1776, William Howe's forces eventually marched triumphantly into New York City. There, he established a base of operations for the British for the entire duration of the rest of the war, and the city really became a haven for Tory refugees. Tory pro-British sentiments were popular in New York through the next few years, And it really was never under threat of being taken over by Washington until the very end of the war. The British also engaged at this point in a large scale counterfeiting operation. And this was done by the British in attempt to sink the New York economy and the American economy in general. The aim here was to debase the currency by printing huge volumes of paper fiat, which is paper currency that is not backed by a tangible asset such as gold and silver. Benjamin Franklin had observed the counterfeiting scheme of the British and said the following about it, quote, The artists they employed performed so well that immense quantities of these counterfeits, which issued from the British government in New York, were circulated among the inhabitants of all the states before the fraud was detected. This operated significantly in depreciating the whole mass so when outright war failed the british had decided to wage economic warfare by printing a whole huge volume of currency and you can see today how that might be controversial because central banks do this all the time but what happens is it acts as a tax against wealth because wealth holdings depreciate the more of a paper currency is available because it's not backed by an asset new york's capture was really one of the pivotal moments of the war that had tested the resolve of American forces. So let's leave New York for a moment and talk about a circumstance that we haven't really talked that much about yet, and that is Benedict Arnold's Canadian invasion of 1775. So we're going back in time a little bit, but many of these events overlap. So as I mentioned in one previous episode, Benedict Arnold led an expedition into Quebec in 1775 with an attempt at expelling British footholds In the region and creating a presence that would stop an invasion of the British from the north. This plan was approved by the Continental Congress but many of the soldiers that had been part of Arnold's expeditionary force had their terms of enlistment expiring at the end of 1775. This put Arnold in a very difficult position and many of the forces that had been part of his expeditionary force had just simply ran off. The Americans failed to capture Quebec in the Battle of Quebec at the very end of the year, despite a rally attempt by a young Aaron Burr, who certainly made his mark upon American history thereafter. Daniel Morgan, a very interesting individual who I promise we'll talk about later, and 400 patriots were taken prisoner by the British forces near Quebec. General Richard Montgomery was also killed, another big loss for the Continental Army. As a decisive British victory, the Battle of Quebec was certainly another setback that affected the Continental Army and the British indeed were able to embark upon northern invasions for much of the rest of the war. Battle of Quebec doesn't also get much coverage in mainstream histories of the war because it was kind of a short-lived excursion that proved pretty bad and negative for Benedict Arnold. And Arnold would have some successes during the war, but the Battle of Quebec was certainly not one of them. Now let's fast forward a little bit more into the next year, into 1776, and talk about a battle that transpired shortly after the Battle of Long Island. The Battle of Valcour Island was a naval clash between Benedict Arnold's forces and those of Guy Carleton, who was a British officer. This happened in Valcour Bay and it was near the fortifications surrounding Fort Ticonderoga. The battle transpired on October 11, 1776. This was mostly a disaster for the American naval ships there, and almost all the ships were captured or destroyed. However, the Continental Army was able to retreat. Some had considered this something of a stalemate, but really the Americans had more losses there than the British. Lake Champlain and Fort Ticonderoga were successfully defended, but the British had really destroyed the hopes of having an American naval fleet in the north. So for the readings today, I'd like to recommend Gordon Woods, The American Revolution, A Short History on This Time, David McCullough's 1776, which deals with many of these circumstances in depth, Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty, which I quoted from before, features content on the First Siege of Charleston, the Battle of Long Island, the Battle of Valcour Island, and all these events in depth, and my own Compact of the Republic, the League of States, and the Constitution. In Chapter 2, I deal with these subjects as well. And I really appreciate it if you pick that book up. The link to that book will be in the show notes. In the next episode, we'll discuss how George Washington and the Continental Army at least partially redeem themselves for the losses suffered in the Battle of Long Island, where Washington scores a victory for which he was certainly most famous for. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Brushfires the Mind. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, drop by my website, www.davebenner.com, click podcast, and you can subscribe right there.